You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Let's jump right in. This is what Paul says, starting in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And last week we talked a lot about, like, kind of, Paul was trying to answer some questions about what that would look like, right? Like, what how will we be raised and what will our bodies look like, right? Like all of those, those questions, those areas that like our minds immediately go to, the details of what will happen when that transaction, quote unquote, takes place. And I love, I love that after 50 verses of Paul explaining and talking and trying to describe, he simply says, it's a mystery. And so for all the work that we've done over the past three to four weeks, I'm here today to tell you it's a mystery. <laughs> it's a mystery. There's some aspects of what God is going to do in our physical bodies, in our hearts, in our, in our spirit. There's, so, there's something about what happens in that time, in that place, when Jesus comes back that is mysterious, that we're just not going to know until the time comes, until we actually experience that day. Truly, that should create in us, Paul's going to make the case over the next few verses, that should create in us an eager longing. And it's a longing that's going to do several things for us that we'll discover as we continue reading through the text this morning. But what I really want to do, especially as we come to the conclusion of chapter 15, which is really sort of Paul's last major theological statement. It's his last major sort of subsection of the letter before he gets into his final greetings to sort of wrapping things up. What I really want to do is look at this particular chapter, but also these particular eight verses in light of everything that's happened so far in this letter. Everything that we've read about, everything that we've come to understand as issues within the Corinthian church. And I think if we've seen nothing else over the past 15 chapters, what we've come to see or what we've come to understand is that there is a lot that needs to change in the church in Corinth. Right? Like there's a lot of behavior that needs to be modified, right? There's a lot of things that Paul has instructed them clearly, right, in no uncertain terms, that these kinds of behaviors, this way of living is counter-Christian. You are more Corinthian than you are Christian. You look more like the world around you than you look like Jesus. And so these are the ways in which our community, and Paul would use the royal we, these are the ways in which our community, our fellowship, our family needs to adjust. And I mean, we could just, we could run down the whole list, couldn't we, right? Like they, they probably shouldn't sue each other, right? Like Christians are all about love and right, we, we're, that's what sort of we're supposed to be known by, Jesus says, right? That we'll be known by our love for one another, 
So maybe suing each other is not the way to go. They shouldn't lord their social status or their wealth over one another. Right? They shouldn't get drunk and sleep with one another. They shouldn't speak over one another in public. They shouldn't, right? I mean, we could, we could go on and on and on and we could enumerate all of these things that are happening in the context of this Christian church, these followers of Jesus who, although they are in fact followers of Jesus, are in many ways significantly, obviously broken. And in making this the conclusion of this letter, Paul is saying something significant. He's saying that, listen, all, like, <laughs> I don't want, I, I want to be very clear. Everything that Paul has written up to this point is very, very important. All of these things matter to Paul, right? All of these things matter ultimately to Jesus as the one who is speaking through Paul for the edification of his church, for its building up, right? All of those things have been important, and yet in Paul concluding this way, and in Paul using the words that this is of first importance, Paul is saying something that we can't afford to miss, and that's this, and that's this. Even if, okay, even if by some miracle, Paul comes back to Corinth a year later, and all of the things that he's dealt with in the first 14 chapters of this letter are fixed, right? Even if they've been papered over and the cracks have been mended and right, all of the relational difficulties that are there have been rectified, everybody's forgiven one another, everybody's walking in kindness towards one right? If, if all of those things were by some miracle fixed, even if they managed to rightly order their spiritual lives and their relational lives together, there is a transformation that will still have yet to have taken place. There is still something out there that is a part of this gospel proclamation, that is a part of God's redemption, that is a part of Jesus' work in the world that has not yet come to pass that they would still long for, that they would still need to with clear eyes and with open hearts look towards and long for knowing that that will be better than even if all of these things were solved here in the present. Which is why Paul goes on to continue writing in verse 53, and he says this, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Now listen, this is the only place in all of Paul's writing, and, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, a lot of, a lot of what comes after Jesus comes on the screen, right, that's, that's in the Bible, much of that is recorded, given, written, obviously by God, but through this man Paul. And in all of Paul's writings, this is the only place in all of Paul's letters where Paul quotes an Old Testament prophecy as one that is yet 
to be fulfilled. Paul deals with Old Testament, all those books written about uh, all those books written before Jesus. Paul deals with those a lot. But he always deals with them in light of how Jesus has already fulfilled them. But this, this singular moment in Paul's writing is a moment where he references an Old Testament prophecy, a combination of portions of Isaiah and Hosea. And he says, this this has yet to pass. This has yet to come. And some of us, I think, are probably familiar with these verses, right? I mean, we sang them quite a few times, even in just the few songs that we sang this morning. But even if maybe you've been to a funeral and you've heard these verses read by a priest or a minister or a pastor. And they'll get up there and they'll read these three verses. They'll say, well, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And I think oftentimes we read this in the context of a funeral because it's, it's filled with hope, right? Death, where's your sting? Where is your victory? It's not, it's not here. And while I don't think that that's necessarily damaging in any way, I think a lot of times we don't read the first part of the verse. It's this time, this, this verse, these verses, these promises from God in the Old Testament that that Paul is now using in the New Testament, they will come to pass. They have not yet come to pass. Right? That's clear from verse 54. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And so listen, again, It's not that this verse shouldn't provide some momentary comfort. I think it should. In fact, I think maybe there's one that's even more comforting before that when Paul says that not all of us will sleep. And he uses the word sleep to refer to death because death isn't really what we experience anymore. But the sting of death, that's still here, isn't it? If you've been to a funeral recently, like you still, there's still tears to be shed. There's still an ache in the heart. There's still an absence that is felt in real and in present terms, right? And so can we really in those moments say to ourselves, death, where is your sting? It's right, it's right here. It hurts. The beauty of the Christian faith is that we can acknowledge the sting. For its momentary power. And at the same time. Acknowledge. That in the future. It will be no longer. That the sting. Will die. That death itself. Will die. That those things. Will come to pass. See right now. Death still works in us. Right? Death still has its word to say over us. Death still comes to us. But one day, this verse says, when Christ returns, it won't. It won't. 
And that, brothers and sisters, is the final victory. That is the day that all of creation, Romans 8 says, is eagerly longing for. When the adoption of God's children is made final. And when our bodies are finally and fully redeemed, right? Where we experience all of that supernatural, glorious, redeemed body that we talked about last week. That is the day that Paul is eagerly encouraging us to long for. And listen, so I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy the hope that is available for us now in the present in light of this verse. But what Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to do is to look forward to the hope of that day that is coming. Keep reading. Verse 56 says this. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So listen, um, Paul wants again to make it very clear why those who follow Jesus, why those who belong to His family, why those who are a part of His kingdom have the hope that they have. Paul has gone throughout this whole chapter reminding them of what their future looks like. Right? Not not just their immediate future. Not just their tomorrow. Not just their next week. Right? But what their, what their eternal future looks like in a gloriously redeemed body, in the fellowship of other redeemed bodies, in a reconciled and redeemed world that we all belong to, characterized by the justice and the peace of the one who rules it, right? And living underneath his banner of mercy and grace, right? All of those things are a part of our future, things that we look forward to because Jesus has gone before us in them. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says that Jesus is our, the first fruits, right? That he's, he's the, the sign of what's to come for us. That for those who are in him, they will experience his future. To be ascended at the right hand of the throne of God. To be in his presence. To be worshiping among the angels. To be right, all of those things. But Paul doesn't want to leave us thinking that our access to that place, is in any way contingent upon our ability to modify our behavior. And again, everything that Paul has said up to this point is important. All of those things that he's told them not to do, they should not do. All of those things that he's told them to do, they should do. But at the same time, what is of first importance, what's, what cannot be neglected, what must be stated is that we experience this final victory. We experience resurrection. We overcome sin and we overcome death to the degree that Jesus himself has overcome sin and overcome death on our behalf. And so if you're not a believer in the, the room this morning, listen, death for you Its sting remains even beyond the grave. There's a very distinct people to whom this hope is promised. And it is to those 
who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus for salvation and life eternal. That is the only means by which you enter into this victory. That is the only means by which you experience that release, that cathartic moment when we, together with all of creation, get to shout, death is swallowed up in victory. And Paul makes it very clear that it is out of thanks to God through the victory of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. And what is it that Jesus does for us? Well, it's all in just this one tiny little verse that we would probably eagerly read past if I wasn't forcing us to look at it. Where does our final victory come from? It comes from the sting of death, which is sin, being forgiven in us. Right? How does Jesus give us the victory in that? Well, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-9 through 9 says this, This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if the sting of death is sin and sin has been removed by Jesus, well then we have victory in who? Jesus, right? What else has Jesus done? Jesus has overcome death, right? That thing that none of us can escape on our own, He has escaped in and of Himself, in and of His person. Romans 6, 9-11, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to what? Sin, once and for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. And what's Paul saying in Romans chapter 6? Saying that, that Jesus has dealt with both the sin and the sting of sin, which is death. And that Jesus in Himself has conquered both of them, right? That He's lived that perfect life on our behalf. He's suffered in our place. And now, if we confess our sins, not only is He faithful and is He just to forgive us, but we actually, in His overcoming of death, also overcome death, right? That's why the remainder of Verse 11 in chapter 6 says this, So you also, Christian, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Jesus deals with the sting of death. He deals with sin, with death itself, and the power of sin, which is the law. Jesus removes the law's power to condemn us because precisely He has fulfilled it. What does that mean? That means that when you and I call upon Jesus for salvation, we're, we're not committing necessarily to a life of performance on His behalf. It's quite the opposite. We're instead looking back and relying upon His performance in His life for us. Which is why Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore, because of Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And so again, all of this victory that we experience is because Jesus has dealt with the sting of death, which is sin, and the power of sin, which is in the law, to condemn us. And because Jesus has dealt with all of those things, we now, as verse 57 says, give thanks to God, who in that work has given us the victory through His Son, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're, if you're wondering this morning, you came in the room, and you're like, man, like what? They really like this Jesus guy. Well, like this is why. We really believe that Jesus has dealt with everything that assails us. We really believe that everything that is broken in us has a promise of future restoration in the resurrection of Jesus. We really believe that life can be had in some measure more abundant here, but also that there's a life coming where death itself is swallowed up in victory. Where there is no sting of death. Where Revelation chapter 5 tells us that there's no tears anymore. That there's no illness. That there's nothing that besets or breaks us the way that it does here and now. And so we can endure what the world and all of its brokenness has for us in these, Paul says, brief mists of moments that we have until eternity comes. And listen, like, we all need to hear that this morning. Whether we've been Christians for our whole lives, like there's not a moment that we can remember where we did not know Jesus. You came out of the, you came out of the womb saying, Jesus is Lord. Or whether this is the first time you've heard about Jesus. Like we all need to be reminded of this. That's why, that's why Paul, after all of his writing, after all of these things that he's encouraging them to do and to not do, always comes back to this reality. That we need Jesus. We need Jesus' victory on our behalf. We need to know that there's a day coming when all of this gets redeemed. All of this gets fixed. All of this gets restored. Because if we don't, we won't have what we need to make it through all of the brokenness of our present moment. And that's why Paul ends this particular portion by saying this in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul concludes this exhortation to with these words that we should hold on, that we should believe in, that we should hope for the resurrection because that is what will keep us rightly minded about the things that are happening around us. Listen, we've made much mention of it already. There's a lot wrong in Corinth. Listen, like, in our culture today, Corinth is the church you leave. It's the church you left because you weren't getting fed. Literally, if you read 1 Corinthians 11, but that's a joke. Right? Corinth is the church you left because there were toxic people there. Corinth is the church you left because they weren't holy enough. Corinth is the church you left because the teaching was a little off. Corinth is the church you left because of the drama. 
And what's Paul's response to all of that? Well, it's not to leave. It's not even in encouraging them to leave, right? He's not like, hey, you know what? I heard Ephesus has like way better guest services. I heard that Thessalonica has a much better kids ministry. The pastor doesn't say things I don't like in Colossae. It's none of those things, right? He encourages the Corinthians throughout the entire letter to engage with their brokenness. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, he encourages them to engage with it with the knowledge that God is a God who makes dead things live. And so maybe there's dead relationships. Maybe there's dead ways of understanding the way we should relate to one another, right? Maybe there's, there's dead social classes that still exist in the culture around us, but that in Christ's kingdom don't exist anymore, right? Like Paul says, this God makes dead things live. And so we can walk into all of these things steadfast, immovable, knowing that any strides that we take towards rectifying these things, any strides that we take towards loving one another better, any strides that we take towards becoming a more faithful church, those steps are not in vain. In the Lord, in Christ, insofar as we trust Him to deal with our brokenness, insofar as we trust Him to fix our broken relationships, insofar as we trust Him to shape us into the men and women that He desperately longs for us to become, insofar as we do those things, our labor is not in vain, brothers and sisters. my encouragement to us this morning, church, is is really simple. Listen, whether you've been here five minutes or five years, we're all well aware that this church is broken. We're all well aware that there are things that could be better. We're all well aware that there are relationships that might be strained that we have one another. We're all well aware of, of any number of things, and yet the encouragement and the exhortation of Paul for us this morning is to engage with those things, not to step back from them. What, what would it look like if in an age of avoidance, in an age of, I got to keep my aura clean, right? Uh, in an age of like, like, just stay just comfortably distant enough to like not mess with my pursuits and my, right? What if in a world like that, we looked more like a people who stepped through all the noise and engaged and loved one another well in all of the brokenness, even when it seems futile, even when it seems like this thing is dead and I don't know how we're going to get it alive again. What if we stepped into all of those things with the knowledge that because Jesus rose from the dead in the Lord, none of that work is in vain? What would it look like if in a neighborhood where churches go to die, we labored, knowing that it's not in vain. What if in a neighborhood that seems so far from Jesus, that seems so far from ever being able to maybe step into the doors of a church for all of the, for all of the maybe cultural reasons that they might have for that, what if we were to labor knowing that it's not in vain? 
And listen, we may never see the great and glorious day of revival that I think all of us would long to see where we have 18 services in here packed out with people who just long for the Lord and, and, and like there's more traffic on Sunday mornings in Montrose than there are Saturday nights, you know, like that. Like, I would love for that to be a reality. And you know what? I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the Lord for those things to happen and to be real and to be true. Again, not so that sojourn is known or, or, or anything like that, but just so that the Lord might come to this place and transform it. But you know what? Even if it happens one or two at a time, year over year at a time, our labor, brothers and sisters, is not in vain. And it's not in vain because we have that promise not only spoken to us by God, but visualized in front of us in the perfect life, sacrificial death, victorious resurrection, glorious ascension, and ongoing rule of King Jesus. And if you're not a Christian in the room this morning, that's what we're inviting you into. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, just so grateful to be gathered together. Thank you, Lord, that in this room, brokenness doesn't have to be hidden because brokenness is being dealt with. And Lord, not in, in harsh and unloving ways, but Lord, in the submission of that brokenness to Jesus and to our brothers and sisters, as we all together eagerly long, eagerly wait for our adoption as sons and daughters, for the redemption of our bodies. Lord, the resurrection, the putting on of the immortal is worth any cost, anything that we could give in our time here. And so, Lord, I pray that we'd be those who are not only willing to count the cost, but then to, to pay it. that we might be transformed in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that we might be delivered to the perfect eternal kingdom in which your Son reigns and rules with peace and mercy and justice and love. And all of our tears are wiped away and Sting's death is removed and all illness is a distant, if entirely, forgotten memory we thank you that we get to enter into that place through the sufficient work of your son Jesus and as we come to your table Lord would we be reminded the price that was paid on our behalf in the broken body and the shed blood of the perfect son of God Jesus Christ thank you that he would be willing to trade places with us and now to be preparing a place for us that we, that we might dwell with them. We love you. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' good name, amen.